Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to another new episode of New Books in Islamic Studies, which is part of the New Books Network. My name is Shobhana Xavier, and I'm one of your co-hosts of this podcast channel. Thank you for joining us today, and I hope you are staying well wherever you are. As you may know, the New Books in Islamic Studies Network welcomes authors who have published a book that is relevant to the field of Islamic studies as it is broadly defined, and we have a conversation about their book. The Sufi Paradigm and the Makings of a Vernacular Knowledge in Colonial India, The Case of Sindh, 1851-1929, which is published by Paul Grave Macmillan in 2020 by Professor Michel Bovin, who is the Director of the Center for South Asian Studies and affiliated with the French National Center for Scientific Research and the School of Advanced Studies in Social Sciences, maps the construction of a vernacular knowledge as opposed to colonial knowledge in Edward Said's terminology of a complex Sufi paradigm in Sindh by both British Orientalists, such as figures like Richard Burton, a controversial figure, but also Sindhi intelligentsia like Mirza Khalik Shbeg. Examining the historical period from 1851 to 1929 during the British colonial control of Sindh, the book argues that though the British were not interested directly in Sufism, their investment in learning languages such as Sindhi and learning about culture for administrative purposes led to a consequential engagement with Sufi literary traditions. One of the Sufi texts that was particularly engaged with was the poetry Shah Jo Rasillo by the Sindhi Sufi poet Shah Abdul Latif. In tracing the lives of Sufi textual and print materials written by both Orientalist and indigenous Sindhi literati, Bovan captures the complex ways in which a Sindhi Sufi paradigm was constructed but also vernacularized and how it was informed by Hinduism, Ismailism, and Sikhism but also the mediums of printing presses, libraries, and bookshops. The book's rich textual and historical analysis provides productive insights to how we can think about the formation or construction of Sufism as a devotional regime of knowledge and how notions of Sufism were informed not only by mystical philosophies and religious practices, but by Sufis themselves and also by broader processes of colonialism, literary practices, and social and economic realities that informed the landscape of Sindhi, of colonial Sindh. The book will be of interest to scholars who uh, write and think about Sufism in South Asia, both in historical and contemporary contexts, but also broadly think about uh, Islam in historical South Asia. In our conversation today, Professor Michelle Bovan and I spoke about these ideas of vernacular knowledge and the framework of Sufi paradigm that he introduces in his book, the religious topography or landscape of colonial ascent and what makes this a unique case study for the arguments that he's making. And we also uh, discussed the role of British Orientalists, such as controversial figures like Richard Burton and how they informed um, how we think about Sufism, but also how indigenous Sindhi voices counteracted the construction of Sufism in their own interpretations and their translation works that they also did as well. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Professor Michel Bovin about his book, 
the Sufi paradigm and the makings of a vernacular knowledge in colonial India, the case of Sindh, 1851 to 1929. Hi, thank you so much for joining us today to talk about your new book, The Sufi Paradigm and the Makings of a Vernacular Knowledge in Colonial India, The Case of Sindh, 1851 to 1929. We have a tradition in new books in Islamic studies that we started a conversation with something a little bit more personal. So I wonder if you could tell us um, what made you become a scholar of South Asia, of Islam um, and broadly religions, and what led you to writing this particular book? Okay, thank you very much. Uh, okay, so uh, as you can guess, it's a pretty long story, but I shall give it short. <laughs> Um, now, because, you know, I started to study uh, history in a French university. I was interested by history uh, since childhood. And also I was very interested by uh, non-European societies and cultures. So even when I was, I was young, I started to read different books related to uh, different uh, non-European traditions. And uh, also um, it was exactly when I was started to study at the university, I also started to travel outside of Europe and I went to visit some uh, uh, countries uh, from North Africa, uh, such as Morocco, Algeria, Tunisia, etc. And so uh, it's how I went to be in touch with Muslim societies, Muslim cultures, and even Sufism. Although the first time I went to a Sufi uh, place in uh, southern Morocco, I didn't really know it was a Sufi place uh, because I have never heard about. But so when I went back to France, uh, of course, I started to look for books, this and that, and I started to read books on Sufism. So it was many years back. And um, I was also interested f almost from the beginning by knowledge. Uh, how do the people know what they do and why they don't know why what they don't know? And, uh, you know, in the... Um, early uh, 1980s, there was a very important book published in French by a scholar, a specialist of Muslim South, thought his name was uh, Henri Corbin, Henry Corbin, and he did publish a book titled History of Islamic Philosophy. So I was very interested by this book, and especially uh, because, in fact, Henry Corbin was a specialist of Persian and of uh, Shia uh, school of Islam. And so in his book about the history of Islamic philosophy, he devoted the main part to Shiism. And in those years, it was not so common. And... I started to be interested by different uh, Shia schools among the Muslim philosophy, among the Muslim world. And especially I was attracted by the Ismaili school 
of Shiism. So, okay, I, I was uh, doing this study, but very soon I specialized in uh, history of the Muslim world because I was student at the University of Lyon in southeast of France. And there was a kind of growing department of Islamic studies or study devoted to the Muslim world. So uh, very soon I started to specialize. I did study, I took courses uh, devoted to uh, history, uh, uh, medieval history of the Muslim world, contemporary history of the Muslim world, art in the Muslim world, etc. And um, I did my uh, master thesis on the Ismaili, and especially on how the French Orientalists represented uh, Ismailism, starting with um, the early uh, eight, uh, no, 19th century, when the French Asiatic Society was created, and including uh, Henry Corbin's own representation of Ismailism. And when I uh, reached when I started to work on a PhD, I wanted to work on the Ismaili. First, I wanted to work on Iran, and I wanted to go to Iran. And uh, so I've got a funding from a French institution. But uh, unfortunately, you know, it was in the early 1980s. It was not a very good political time. I'm referring to the relations between France and Iran. So finally, uh, Iran, govern, Iranian government closed the French Institute in Tehran. So I could not uh, uh, um, do this study about the Ismaili and Iran. So I uh, decided to shift it to the to shift to the east and to go to India. I started first to work in uh, Bombay, Mumbai on the Ismaili, but because since many work have been devoted to the Ismaili, but you know, in the classical age, it is a medieval times, my main question only was, what are now the Ismaili? Uh, what, 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 what is their philosophy? Uh, what are, where are they settled mostly, etc.? And then from uh, Mumbai, also, I started to visit Karachi and uh, seeing the south, uh, the southwest uh, east, sorry, province uh, of Pakistan. And I wanted to devote a kind of historical and anthropological study of the present-day Ismaili of South Asia. And uh, from Karachi, when there is the headquarters of the Ismaili, I started with Ismaili friend to tour in interior Sindh because the Ismaili, you can find still many Ismaili villages in the very southern part of Pakistan, along the, the, the seashore. And uh, it's how I started to be in touch with the Sufi culture of Sindh. And so after I completed my study on the Ismaili uh, in Sindh and in South Asia, uh, I also started other research projects on the Sufi, on Sufism in Sindh. 
Um, and it's interesting because many of these themes um, are themes that emerge in this book. And so it's nice to hear a genealogy of where they're coming from, of both your your intellectual and academic journeys. Um, so I wonder if we could start with some of the main themes of the book. The, the book is in, uh, divided into three parts and has uh, 12 chapters, and there's a lot of rich detail, um, textual detail. Um, so before we go into some of those details, I wonder if we could um, focus on the main ideas. And one of the main ideas you're trying to engage with or develop is this idea of vernacular knowledge. And you contrast that with colonial knowledge kind of in an Edward Saidian sense. So can you tell us um, what is this phrase vernacular knowledge and what is the argument that you're making in this book um, in developing this phrase? Yes, sure. Um, Yeah, so I I start from the beginning because, you know, when you are uh, starting to work on a kind of historical and anthropological uh, perspective on scene, what we call in French, but also in English, uh, historical anthropology. Uh, of course, the first issue you have to deal with is that there is a, a, a lack of sources before the colonial period of sin. Uh, the British conquest sinned in 1843. So before 1843, you have a number, of course, of historiographical uh, treatises written in Persian, but not that much. And if you want to study, for example, some uh, Sufi sites, uh, for example, the pilgrimage city of Sevan Sharif, so it's uh, it's really a, a huge uh, problem you have to face because finally the first detailed sources are the colonial sources and you know maybe years back the first time uh, one of the first time I came to Karachi I went to a bookshop and I asked uh, the the bookseller uh, I'd like to uh, see some books on anthropology of Sindh. And the guy told me, oh yeah, of course, I have a very good book uh, related to uh, anthropological approach to Sindh. He came back and he gave me Richard Burton's book on the races that inhabited the Valley of the Hindus, published in 1851. So, Of course, it was really a big issue because my first uh, reaction was, oh my God, but Richard Burton was an officer in the East India Company, uh, so it's a kind of colonial source. And what could I do with this? And unfortunately, you you cannot balance, uh, for example, Burton's uh, uh, version of on the society of our religions with, with other sources, especially uh, vernacular sources. Because, uh, of course, there, there are uh, very few manuscripts and so on. But uh, I mean, these uh, vernacular sources uh, do not uh, take the same uh, approach, the same perspective. Because uh, Richard Burton claimed himself to be an ethnologist. He used this word in his publication uh, devoted to, um, uh, to sin. 
So it was a, a main issue immediately when I started to uh, work on SIND. And also uh, because this book finally, you know, resulted from a, a very long uh, study. Uh, I started maybe 15 years back. And um, so, uh, yeah, what was very interesting uh, for me and what could maybe challenge some opinion uh, in the field of the postcolonial studies was that uh, for the making of the vernacular knowledge in sin, uh, you can identify two distinct phases. And the first phases uh, was implemented by the British or by the European, because there is a main uh, figure who played a leading role in this process. He was German, but uh, he was also an Anglican priest, so he was a missionary uh, for the Anglican Church. So the first phase, this uh, European uh, play a leading role because I mean that they started to collect uh, different folk tales uh, and also very important, uh, they published the first Sufi poetry in Sindhi. And it was this a German missionary, um, his name was uh, Frere, who published in 1866 the first ever printed book in Sindhi, and it was a very important Sufi poetry uh, composed by Shabdul Latif in uh, uh, the 18th century and named uh, Shad Jorisalo. So it was the first phase. But very interestingly, uh, some time after this first publication, the new Sindhi intelligentsia started to appropriate themselves uh, what the British had started to build. Uh, this um, publication in Cindy and themselves, uh, to some extent, they also started to objectify uh, their own Sufi literature. Uh, of course, they also uh, criticized the version that the German missionary had printed of the uh, Shadjori Salo. So they started to bring other uh, manuscripts of the same Shadjori Salo, but also they went finally to realize uh, that they had a vernacular culture, and in this vernacular culture, uh, Sufism, especially Sufi literature, was playing a leading role. Mm. And and I think here um, you develop this idea of the Sufi paradigm, right? And how both the, the British, but also this in the intelligentsia are yeah. actively participating in creating, as you say, an objectification of Sufism. So can you um, explain that to us a little bit more of what you mean by the Sufi paradigm um, and why you're not, for instance, using ideology or culture, as you explained yeah. in the first chapter? Mm -hmm. Yeah, of course. Yeah, but first also I want to uh, precise that uh, uh, what the, Bri the British did, of course, it was not for, uh, uh, how to say, uh, for studying Sindhi literature. Also, okay, because when this uh, German uh, 
priest Trump. He started to work on Sindhi literature, and when he, start, he wanted to publish the Shadjuri Salo, uh, the main purpose was to educate the British officer in Sindhi. And in fact, Trump was funded by the commissioner in Sindh, Sir Bartle Frere. And in fact, Sir Bartle Frere asked him to do this work. Okay, so the purpose of this publication was to allow the, uh, the British officer of the East India Company, because it, uh, it first and then after, of course, for the Raj, uh, to learn Sindhi and because when they were posted in the countryside so that they can more easily uh, interact with the local population. So the British, they, they had no interest uh, with Sufism, with Sindhi literature um, as such. And um, yeah, so, but after the printing of the Shadjuri Salo, uh, Sufism and especially Sufi literature uh, as a kind of intellectual construct started to work as a paradigm. Why? Because all the main topic, all the main concept uh, addressed by Shabdul Latif in his Shadjuri Salo uh, work like a paradigm. And from this topic and concept, all the Sindhi in the second half of the uh, 19th century uh, started to identify all the literature, all the Sufi literature, but also Hindu devotional literature uh, that can fit this paradigm. Uh, for example, you can find uh, the importance of the uh, Vada Tevujud, the uh, unicity, unity uh, of uh, existence. Uh, you can find the importance of music, but uh, conceive as a mystical path. And uh, in uh, several uh, Sufi poets from Sindh, in fact, music is represented as being meditation, zikr. Uh, you can find also the interaction between the Sufi figure and the jogi as a model of asceticism. So you can find all this uh, from the Shadjuri Salo and all this uh, topic and concept became a paradigm because they were used as such by the other uh, Sinfi authors in uh, the second part of the 19th century and also in the early 20th century. Mm. Um, and I think one of the things that the book really uh, fascinatingly highlighted and was important is really the interaction with multiple religious traditions from Ismaili tradition to, to Hinduism and how this all informed the Sufi paradigm. Um, so can you maybe for some of our listeners who may not know, perhaps give us a sense of what Sindh um, looked like religiously at this time period that you're engaging with, so maybe the religious topography of the um, colonial Sindh um, and why you think this kind of topography is so important to the argument that you're making about the vernacular knowledge and the construction of a Sufi paradigm. 
Yeah, so it is true that uh, it's uh, very important to have a look at the religious history of Sindh before colonization. Um, Because if you have a look at this, if you, of course, there are uh, uh, different sources in different languages, but we have uh, very uh, serious studies about the different periods. What I can say is that... uh, Sindh, surely because of its very local uh, geographical position, was a kind of refuge for different uh, religions or uh, sects uh, from the Indian side, but also from the Muslim side. Uh, For example, uh, you know, when the uh, Muslim conquest sinned in 718, we have some uh, 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 travels, uh, books from Chinese pilgrims, and we give a very interesting description of sin before the coming of the Muslims. And according to one, especially one Tsang, he came to Sin about 50 years before the Muslim conquest. And it's very interesting to see that in Sin, so Sin was uh, mostly uh, Buddhist and also Hindu, but the two dominant schools from uh, Buddhism and uh, uh, Hinduism were Uh, what I can coin as heretic schools uh, among both the religions. So they were not regular, they were not the mainstream uh, schools. So already before the Muslim came, uh, you can see Sindh as a kind of refuge from a sect which could have been uh, persecuted in the uh, centers of the different empires. And after the Muslim, so first it's very important to know that uh, the uh, Muslim conqueror coming from Damascus, because it was during the time of the Umayyad Caliphate, an empire. So this uh, conqueror, General Muhammad ben Qasim, never compelled the local people to convert because he was using the system of jizya, you know, and uh, so it means that the local population, if they wanted to keep their previous religion, they had to pay a tax and they were demi, they were protected by the uh, Muslim state. And in fact, it was on a very long uh, process that finally the population of Sin became Muslim in majority. And in this respect, two Muslim uh, uh, movements play a very important role in the in this uh, conversion, so to say. Uh, the first one were the Ismaili, because very soon the Ismaili came to Sindh, and even before the Ismaili created the uh, 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 Fatimid Empire in Egypt, because you know the Fatimid, uh, they were Ismaili uh, Caliph. They created Cairo City in 969, but even before, they were in North Africa, in present-day Tunisia, and from there already they have some um, uh, 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 state uh, which were uh, affiliated to them, especially in Yemen. And from Yemen, some missionary 
came to sin. So it means that in the middle of the 10th century, around 950, 960, very soon there was in sin an Ismaili stame uh, who was which was acknowledging the sovereignty of the Fatimid Empire. So the Ismailis, they came very early in this area, in the Indus Valley. And we know, especially through different uh, vernacular literatures, what was the process for the Ismaili to attract the local population, to convert them. Finally, uh, they were using their ritual. Uh, for example, they were giving a great importance to dance, and uh, only you know they were also uh, diffusing a kind of new, a kind of new discourse, uh, especially based on the idea of the savior. And in this part of South Asia, uh, different Hindu uh, cults were waiting for the coming of the Savior. So it played a very important role because this Ismaili didn't ask the Hindu, for example, to convert totally, so to say, to Islam. They only started very gradually uh, trying to convince them that the Savior was to come very soon. And this Savior finally uh, was the living imam of the uh, Ismaili. So it was the first, uh, uh, I would say, uh, attempt and the first interaction uh, between uh, uh, really the Muslim and the Hindu. And later on, especially during the 13th century, the Sufi came to the Indus Valley and especially uh, there was a very uh, important Sorawardi uh, master Baudin Zakaria. He stayed in Multan, but in the 13th century, Multan was a part of Sindh. And also, uh, apparently, he used the same uh, uh, strategy than the Ismaili. So he didn't ask the local population to become Muslim on the spot. First, he started to attract them uh, to use also their rituals uh, and give this ritual a new meaning. And especially, um, yes, with the importance he gave also to music, to dance, etc. So it was a very long process uh, of the local population from Hindu or Buddhist to become Muslim, and for sin proper, according to the historical sources, it is not before the 15th, 16th century that the population was Muslim in majority. But, uh, of course, we don't have real uh, demographic statistic uh, for those uh, historical periods. Uh, as you know, the first census uh, were uh, organized by the British in 1871. And so, according to this census, the population of Sin was between, it depends, because the census were organized every 10 years. So the Hindu population were between 20 and 25 percent 
of the total population of Sindh. And the Muslim, of course, there were maybe 70%, but among the 70%, there was uh, uh, an important uh, Shia minority, maybe 20, 25%. And regarding the Hindu, so there were between 20 and 25% of the total population of sin, but it's very important to know that they play a leading role in two fields. First, economy, because most of the trade was in the hands of uh, trader Hindu castes, and especially in Karachi, which was booming after the British came to sin. Uh, so they were very important in the economy and in trade, especially it was in the second half of the 19th century. And second, also they were playing a leading role in the administration uh, because when the British came to Sindh, uh, they found a caste, a Hindu caste named the Amil, which was specialized into administration, even before them. This caste of the Amil uh, knows Persian, because all the administration uh, was done in Persian, and so they were having very important positions in the pre-British administration. Some of them were even prime minister of the Muslim kings before the British. So the British, they kept this elite, so to say, the Amil. And so the Amil were very well educated and they hold, you know, the most important post of the administration in revenues, in justice, even in education itself. They were the one who created in Karachi, in Hyderabad, uh, the first uh, colleges, the first uh, high schools, uh, etc. So it was the, the distribution of the, uh, between the Hindu and the Muslim uh, in colonial Sindh. And I think that is very helpful for us in terms of thinking about some of um, the um, uh, kind of exchanges that unfold in, between the British and the, cre- and the development of particular type of literatures that you talk about. Um, so I wonder if we could shift to some of the themes of uh, part two of the book. And in part two of the book, you're introducing uh, figures, British Orientalist figures like Richard Burton and also um, um, Ernest Trump. And so I know Trump may elude a a different Trump in a contemporary moment, but we're talking about the Anglican priest in um, Orientalist time. And so how did these figures, particularly um, in terms of their engagement with the Sufi poet Shah Abdul Latif and the prince? of the Shah Joe Rosalo, which you've already kind of alluded to in your comments. Um, what what did they do in terms of printing these material and what, what was a consequence perhaps of this material, which then would later go on to influence um, um, a Sindhi literati or intelligentsia, which I think is the second part of your broader argument. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you're, you're right. You, you, you named the two most important uh, uh, people in this uh, process of uh, vac- vernacularization and of making this uh, Sufi paradigm. Uh, yeah, so uh, 
So, yeah, it's very interesting. And of course, once again, we are back to the uh, different issues uh, of the uh, post-colonial studies. But uh, because, for example, if I take the case of Richard Francis Burton, he's a very uh, famous uh, uh, orientalist, but is also very controversial because, you know, this uh, Richard Francis Burton, he was an officer in a East India Company, and he was not really an Orientalist uh, 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 as a specialist, so to say, because, I mean, he didn't really study in English university uh, the different languages, the different uh, literature, and also what is very interesting is very critical toward the classical uh, British Orientalist, starting with William Jones, the famous uh, founder of the uh, Asiatic Society of Bengal and uh, also of uh, different other things. So uh, himself, he introduced himself as a kind of independent uh, scholar, adventurers, and, uh, and also is very famous in the academic world because he came to different uh, continents. He started with South Asia, but after, you know, he was very famous in the uh, uh, Middle East because he was one of the first European to perform the pilgrimage to Mecca under disguise. And so he published his travels to Mecca. And he was also a translator of the uh, Thousand nine, thousand and one nights, I think. <laughs> no, because in French it's very different the title. So I think in English it is the one. Okay, but uh, you know the specialists of this uh, Middle East sometimes uh, don't really trust him, and uh, some of them uh, even put that he was a big liar so that uh, okay I, I didn't investigate uh, really this issue but did he really uh, visit Mecca etc etc and also is very famous because he went to Africa because after being officer in the East India Company, he became a diplomat. So he was posted around the world in, in different countries, including Africa. And in Africa, he was an explorer, an adventurer, because he wanted to discover the uh, spring of the Nile River. And once again, he published many books about this issue. So what is very uh, fascinating with Richard Burton is that, you know, he's very well known, but from different parts of the academia. And for example, the specialist on Africa knows no Burton for his work on Africa. The specialist of the Middle East, they know him for his work on Mecca, uh, Arabian Nights, etc. But they don't know him for what he did in South Asia. And uh, for me, South Asia in Richard Burton's career is very important because it was his formative years. You know, after leaving England, he went to uh, Bombay, 
when he enrolled in the East India Company. Uh, first, he was posted in uh, Baroda, Vadodara, for some months. But on the spot, he started to learn languages, and he was very good in learning languages. Everybody testified about this uh, ability he had. Uh, and after he went to Sin. So in Sind, he spent maybe five years, no more, but uh, he published thousands of pages. And what is very innovative in his approach, it is that he adopts a kind of pre-ethnographical pre approach. And as I said previously, he claimed himself to be uh, a, an ethnographer. Uh, so, this is something about him, but of course, uh, also in his approach, you can find a number of imperialist uh, features because he was a British, he was in, an officer, and you know, he came to scene very soon after the British conquest. So, Uh, he was very close to the uh, British conqueror of Sin, General Napier, and he was very admirative because Napier was a conqueror, the conqueror of Sin. So, of course, uh, Burton had also a lot of prejudices about Sin. He used words such as barbarian, uh, savages, about the Sindhi, even about the Sindhi language. But... Um, Uh, despite these uh, imperialist features, uh, he was the first to prove that, for example, Sindhi was a distinct language because for, before him, uh, the British used to say it was a kind of dialect, a kind of patois of Hindi. He was the first to clearly state there was a Sindhi literature, and in mid-19th century, it was quite important because in the representation of the uh, of humanity in, in those times, you know, uh, a, a people with a literature was almost civilized people, almost. <laughs> But it was a condition to be among the civilized uh, uh, people uh, around the world. So he was uh, the first to clearly state and contradict in his British European predecessor that there was a Sindhi literature. And for his demonstration, uh, he was using the Shad Jori Salo, this famous Sufi poetry. But even for the Shad Jori Salo, it's very amazing because you can find very contradictory statements So sometimes he said that uh, Shabdulatif uh, had to deal with a very barbarous language, but simultaneously he, he will put that there are wonderful poetry in the Shadjuri Salo. Uh, so there is all these uh, contradictions. But uh, uh, I would say that he, he played a very important role in this uh, respect, uh, so uh, especially when he provide evidence there was a distinct Sindhi language and that there was also a Sindhi uh, literature. Uh, so finally, you know, when uh, Trump 
and strump. So yeah, it is strump, but with double P. But I think that both have German origin. It is another topic. Yeah. So uh, when Trump came to uh, to sin as a missionary first, uh, yes, already you know uh, Burton had published uh, his uh, books, especially the the books he published two books in uh, 1851. But uh, Trump also, uh, I would say that uh, uh, like Burton, you know, you you can find this uh, dual. Uh, uh, representation of Sindhi literature. So, of course, for him, uh, the Sindhi, they are not civilized. They are uh, barbarians. And on the other side, also, it's very admirative, especially of Shabdulatif poetry. But in the preface of this first edition of the Shadjoli Shalo, uh, finally published in 1866, he explained that initially he didn't want to publish this Sufi poetry. He wanted to publish folk tales in Sindhi and he added that that he had collected uh, many, many different uh, folk stories. Uh, He he spent time with bards, with Sindhi bards, and that he had collected, he had put in uh, writing form uh, the different uh, oral literature of the Sindhi. But he said that it was too difficult to find a proper version because, you know, for a single story, story, he had got so many different versions, it would have taken too much time for him to, 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 to edit a proper version. So that's why he turned to the Shadjuri Salo because even if before his publication, the Shadjuri Salo was also uh, uh, an oral, a part of oral literature, he could select six or seven manuscripts of the Shadjuri Salo and from these different manuscripts, uh, he finally edited and published his own version of this uh, Shadjuri Salo. But was it, what is also very interesting, it is that this first edition and printing of the Shadjuri Salo was made in Germany, in Leipzig. And for this, Trump had to uh, ask the printer to make to build the Cindy fonts for the publication. Uh, but uh, I, I would say that Trump had built his own Cindy script, and so now it is not used as such. But uh, despite this, uh, we can read uh, still his uh, printing of the Shadjuri Salo. So it is fascinating that you have the British engaging uh, with these sources almost for other reasons, right? To engage with literature, to, um, um, and it seems like the British were not so directly always interested in Sufism per se, but they were kind of accidentally engaging with it. But what is fascinating, I think, and when you discuss in chapter seven and chapter eight is the way in which these sources, these print material um, publications, which were available, then goes on to inform 
um, the local intelligentsia, the literati, um, uh, and the Sindhi culture, right? And who then are also engaging these materials and then adding to the Sufi paradigm, but in other fascinating ways. Um, so one of the figures that you introduce, um, and I apologize if I pronounce the name wrong, is Mirza Khalik Shbeg. Um, and so I wonder if you could talk about how uh, a figure like that is also adding to the building of the Sufi paradigm, having engaged with these material, but is trying to make other kinds of interventions about what he thinks Sufism is um, and kind of reclaim it, I guess, from the British in some way? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, of course, uh, Mirza Kalijbeg is also a very important uh, character in this story of the making both of the Sufi paradigm and of uh, the the building of the uh, vernacular knowledge, uh, because um, um, yeah, of course, Meza Kaladbeg, uh, as his name can attest, was a Muslim. He was a Shia Muslim, and uh, so he is, uh, I would say, a kind of um, exemplary uh, scholar from this generation because himself, you know, he belonged to a family associated with, with the kings of Sin, the Talpur, who are ruling Sin because, before the British conquest. And this Talpur, they were defeated by the British army of General Napier in 1843. So there were part of the court, Mirza Kalijbek's family, uh, belong to the court of this Talpo family. So, of course, after the conquest, the British conquest, uh, most of the Talpo, uh, they were uh, compelled to leave Sindh and they were uh, put in different uh, places in South Asia or in uh, other parts of the world. They were so in exile. And all the court, all their court, they were, I would say, they lost their job and they were so uh, in a very, very difficult situation. So many among them, they started to go to the British school. The, the British just uh, created schools uh, from the 1850s onwards and where uh, the, the student can learn the uh, the Western uh, sciences of the new sciences uh, which were spreading in the 19th century. So Meza Kalidbeck went to that some uh, British school in uh, Hyderabad and finally he became um, a civil servant for the East India Company. But he was also, of course, very interested by his own culture, the Sindhi culture. Uh, you know, for example, uh, when there was a first printing of the Shadjuri Salo, uh, he was, of course, uh, very young. He was a boy. And uh, unfortunately, we don't have uh, details, but we can think that he started to uh, read the books the British were printing in Sindhi, because the Chajori Salo was the first, but later on the British, of course, published other books in Sindhi and not mostly devoted to Sufism. Most of the books that were printed in Sindhi, they were 
mostly related to the new uh, European sciences such as uh, geometry, mathematics, uh, all this. But um, so also uh, Mesa Kalichbeg was himself very fond of uh, devotional literature in Sindhi, uh, Sufi poetry, but also the devotional Shia literature, you know, all this uh, uh, poetry, uh, related to uh, the the martyrdom of Imam Hussein at Karbala, uh, this and that. And what is very interesting with him is that it gave two new directions to the uh, construction of the Sufi paradigm, because until now we talked only of Sufi poetry. And uh, Melza Kalijbek was the first to take interest in the life of the Sufi, not only of the poetry they had composed, but also her life, uh, their life, sorry. And uh, so he published in the 1884, if I, if I remember properly, uh, the first biography of Shah Abdul Latif. And uh, in this biography, interestingly, he published it first in English and after in Sindhi. So, probably that he wanted to reach not only the British, but this new intelligentsia, Sindhi intelligentsia, uh, all these people were working in British administration, and of course, so they were uh, talking in English. So, it was the first biography devoted to a Sufi of Sindh. Uh, of course, in the portrait he drew of Shabdu Latif in this biography, um, you know, it is not an, a geography. He wants to show that Shah Abdul Latif was a very simple man. He, he was living a very simple life and uh, uh, that everybody can have access to him. He was talking to all the classes of the society, of all the castes, of the powerful people, of, to the, uh, sorry, to the powerful people, to the destitute people. He was a very simple man. Uh, also, as I put in my book, I think that he was inspired by biography of Prophet Muhammad uh, were published at the same period, and especially one very famous uh, published in Urdu by uh, Said Ahmad Khan. And this biography of Prophet Muhammad is also echoing a very famous book published by a French scholar, Ernest Roland, on the life of Jesus, but it is another story. I mean that there is a, a kind of shifting because all these scholars, uh, they are not satisfied with the traditional hagiographies, uh, the sacred life of the prophets, of the saints, only based on miracles, especially. And so it's very... Uh, important in this biography published by Mirza Khalid Beg. Uh, in putting a few words, he wants to make him to make him accessible to all the classes of Sindhi society. So to some extent we can even speak of a kind of uh, democratization 
of Sufism, of the Sufi poets. And the second point, very important, I, I would say it is in the same uh, uh, same understanding on Sufism. So it is also an addition to a kind of process of democratization because he gave a lot of importance to for explaining the Sufi poetry. Because, for example, for the Shajuri Salo of Shabdul Latif, even if it is a very popular Sufi poetry, some parts are very, very difficult to understand for a number of reasons. First, because Shabdul Latif is using very old Sindhi words. I mean that in the 19th century, they were not used anymore. So the people, they cannot understand. Second, uh, of course, in this poetry, there are very mystical uh, references. Uh, uh, when I started, I quote the Vada Tevujud and all these philosophical and even philosophical concepts. So this also was very difficult to understand. So Mirza Kalijbek gave a great importance to explain in Sindhi uh, this concept, this word, knowing also that in uh, this Sufi poetry of Shabdul Latif, but uh, it is the same case for other Sufi poets, also they use a lot of Arabic, Persian references and concepts. And of course, for the uh, simple Sindhi men, women, they could not understand. They could not understand the importance of this concept, of uh, this uh, topic, etc. So, in this respect, Mirza Kalijbeg uh, play a very fundamental role for giving access to all the classes, all the different strata of the Sindhi society far beyond the intelligentsia, far beyond the elite, even far beyond the, I would say, professional Sufi, uh, as for example, the caretakers of the Sufi Darga, very numerous in Sindh. Yeah, I found this um, part two very rich um, in, in terms of you mapping some of the ways in which um, um, these uh, Sindhi literati were being also informed by maybe uh, European or ideas, you know, such as uh, um, not only European, but North American as well, like um, the Theosophical Society and Helena Bavatsky. So it's just such a rich, rich uh, mm. section. Um, I wonder if we could shift to the final uh, part, uh, part three. And here you're kind of bringing all of these different chapters together and you're introducing to us this idea of um, devotional regimes of knowledge, which um, I think you're framing based on vernacular culture. And you're contrasting that to normative regimes of knowledge. Um, and this, these uh, last three chapters are really engaging with kind of some of the ways in which, um, you know, there's different forms of reformism that's happening both in Muslim communities, but also Hindu communities, and everybody's kind of in the state where they're trying to define boundaries. Um, um, and so I think this idea of devotional regimes of knowledge is helping us think about 
um, the Sufi paradigm and how, you know, the paradigm is a vernacular knowledge of Sindh. So can you unpack that a little bit for us and what you, why you thought that um, devotional regimes of knowledge was perhaps a productive way to situate some of the arguments you're making in this book? Yes. <laughs> yeah, so I, I mean that uh, until the late uh, 19th century, um, the, 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 the fundamentals of religious culture of sin were informed by the Sufi paradigm. Uh, so the Sufi paradigm, it is based on the kind of a devotional conception of religion. So it means that uh, the most important part of religion is not to follow what is considered as being the sacred scripture, to follow literally. Uh, for example, for a Muslim, uh, you are not supposed to do exactly all what your sacred scriptures, starting with the Quran, but also the Hadith. Uh, so you don't have to do literally all what is written in this uh, uh, sacred scripture. Uh, but for many different re uh, reasons, and of course there are many uh, intricate processes in this, but also they have been uh, well studied. Uh, after the shock provoked by British colonization in South Asia and the uh, total domination of the British on uh, the society and the economy and the political power, uh, the Indians, but you can observe such a phenomena in all uh, the world uh, which were colonized by the European. So the local population, namely the Indians, started to try to understand what had happened. In other words, of course, it's uh, put in very brief words, but uh, why did this European uh, succeed in submitting them to their power? And uh, so the different answers were given to this uh, fundamental question, but an important part of the answers, and what is very interesting that you can find such, a, such an answer both among the Hindu and among the Muslim, I'm talking about India, uh, yeah, they find the answer that they had forgotten their tradition, they uh, distorted their own tradition, they were not doing the right thing, they were not following uh, rightly and properly their tradition. And when I talk about tradition, of course, especially religious tradition, because the religious tradition was framing mostly the values, the ideals of these societies. So if we take the Muslim, um, they wanted to go back, but you can find the same process in the Middle East among the uh, Arab-speaking population and others. Yeah, they started to turn back to the sacred literature and they started to publish books in which the scholars for Islam, the Muslim scholars well tell, were telling the people this, this you can do, this, this you cannot do because it is non-Islamic. Because this practice, this ritual, you cannot find it in your sacred scripture. So it means it is un-Islamic. So 
you have to stop performing this ritual. And in the late, in the last quarter of the 19th century, in Sindh, you can find such uh, books published in Sindhi uh, where the Muslim scholars explain what is Islam, what is true Islam, and even among the Hindus, but even among the Sikhs, and even among different sects, uh, you can find these books published in Sindhi where each religious tradition wants to build what I call a normative regime of knowledge. And this normative regime of knowledge, uh, it means that they want to give the right norms, what they think to be the right norms of their own tradition. And uh, so the issue I want to address in the part three is how the building of this uh, normative regime of knowledge are challenging the Sufi paradigm, uh, uh, especially under uh, the shape of the Shajuri Salo and others. So finally, the scholar who are constructing the normative regime of knowledge, are they challenging, weakening the Sufi paradigm? So it is uh, one of the points I want to address. But also uh, what I observe at the turning point of the 19th and the 20th century is that there were other attempts uh, always among the Sindhi literati to not to build other devotional regime of knowledge, uh, I mean beyond Sufism, but some uh, devotional tradition wanted to build uh, a community and also a tradition, a unified tradition and a unified community. Uh, for example, if I take the case of the Ismaili, you know the Ismaili, so they are Shia Muslim, but they have a very specific religious tradition in which they are incorporated to uh, some uh, Hindu uh, concept and also ritual. So finally, we can say that they have built a, a distinct uh, religious tradition, okay? But in the late 19th century, they wanted to harmonize all the different versions of their tradition because it is a main thing to know. Until 19th century, all what we call now Muslim, Hindu, Sikhs, they were very fragmented uh, and local community. And each community in a given area or even in a city, even in a village, they are uh, adapted, constructed a special form of this tradition. So these devotional regimes, such as the Ismaili, they wanted to harmonize the tradition uh, in South Asia, in Sindh, but also in Punjab, in Gujarat, in Rajasthan, in other uh, uh, provinces of the Indian subcontinent. Uh, 
And so uh, what I want also to address in the third part is to what extent uh, the building of this uh, devotional and the, especially the making of this unifying process among the different uh, devotional traditions. So they were also challenging uh, the Sufi paradigm. So it's uh, mostly uh, what was my purpose in the third part. Mm, yeah. I mean, there's so many wonderful, fascinating, rich details in all of the individual chapters, um, and you've laid it out really well in a very clear way. And um, and so we can, I think, talk and talk about all the details, but I'm also very mindful of your time. So um, I think for readers who are, and listeners who are really interested, hopefully they will pick up the book um, as this is a really deep dive of a, a particular um, geographical um, and historical moment and showcases how the boundaries of Sufism are really being contested by these multiple um, figures and uh, uh, people in, in power, um, but also indigenous voices in the case of Sindh. Um, I wonder, uh, before I let you go, if you could tell us a little bit about um, some of the projects that you're working on right now. I know before we started talking, um, you were mentioning how busy things are in, in Paris with the teaching and everything, but perhaps you have some um, projects undergo that you're working on slowly um, yeah, 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 you know, because finally also through uh, Sufism and my study uh, devoted to Sufi culture, uh, I went to focus on uh, uh, what I w will call the shared legacy, uh, especially uh, between uh, Hindu and Muslim. And so uh, now I'm working on a project related to a sacred figure, uh, which is shared by both Muslims and Hindu along the Indus River, and this secret figure is known under different names such as Julelal, Uderolal, but also Khwaja Rizal. So uh, mostly I'm working on this uh, topic. Fantastic. Well, I'm so grateful for your time today um, and for you um, joining us to have a conversation about your fantastic and rich new book. Um, hopefully it'll bring, um, uh, listeners will pick up the book and um, be in touch if they have more questions for you. Um, but thank you so much, Professor Bouvain. Please. Thank you. Thank you. And that was my conversation with Professor Michel Bovin about his new book, The Sufi Paradigm and the Makings of a Vernacular Knowledge in Colonial India, The Case of Sindh, 1851 to 1929, published by Palgrave Macmillan in 2020. Thank you so much for joining us for another episode of New Books in Islamic Studies. We're so glad to have you along. We hope you enjoyed the episode and we look forward to having you join us again next time. Stay well and take good care.